0: Father, as we come to you in Jesus' name, we do so with thankful hearts that we are in the palm of your hand. Father, I thank you that no matter what the difficulties we may face individually or as a nation, we can look to God for the strength we need. The Lord is our shepherd, even as we will see in this passage today. God is our shepherd, he is the one who guides us, keeps us, directs us. And as we study the words of uh, Moses, which you inspired so long ago, the record of Jacob's blessings upon his grandsons and then upon his sons, we pray, Father, that you will direct our thinking, help us to extract the truths that apply to our lives today. We're just thankful, Lord, for your presence with us. We pray for those who cannot be here this morning because of illness or because of the weather. Just bless them in a special way today. And throughout the Sunday School this hour, we ask for your presence in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to the 48th chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 48. I'd like to read beginning at verse 8. Genesis 48, 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. We'll stop there for a few minutes. Last week we began to look at this particular passage and we noted that Jacob in the first verses of this passage had called Joseph to to be with him because he felt that this was his time of death or that death was near. And... Joseph rounded up his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and brought them with him because he wanted them to be in on the blessing that was going to come. We saw that in the first few verses, Jacob basically told Joseph that, I am adopting your two sons. I am making them as Reuben and, and, and Simeon are to me. They are going to be part of my family as if they were my children rather than my grandchildren. And now in this particular uh, section, he says, well, but who are these two boys? And the scripture tells us that his eyes were dim with age. Because of his 147 years, he apparently had serious cataracts and all he could see were shadows. And he knew that someone else was there, but he had made this adoption in effect without even knowing the boys were present, but only that Joseph was present present. And so now that he is told that, no, my my sons are here, and so he asks that they be brought close to him. He wants to give them a very, very special blessing. He had adopted them not knowing they were present. Now he wants to make it official before them that he is adopting them as his own sons. Jacob, we're told, blessed the young men. The Hebrew word for bless is barak. And the meaning of the word is to endow with, with success, with prosperity, with longevity, with fruitfulness, which are things, of course, that we can say, bless you, my son, and we would like for those things to be true, but only God can truly bless. God is the only one who can make these things a reality. God is the only one who can grant to us longevity, who can grant to us success, who can give us prosperity. Someone else cannot just say the words and that will happen to us. And so it is from God that the blessing comes, but in this case, obviously, Jacob is the channel through which the blessing would come. And in the process, he is performing a little ceremony here relative to the two young men. And this ceremony is based on the promises that came from God through Abraham, Isaac, and then to Jacob himself and we have studied through the book of genesis of the many encounters that abraham had with god that isaac had with god and then the eight encounters that jacob himself had with god in in the form of a theophany that is where he either visually or audibly had direct contact with the living god and on the basis of the words of those contacts the promises given the inheritance of the land of canaan jacob is giving, transferring that blessing on to his grandsons, whom he has just adopted as his sons. And we have to understand that God is in this. God is the one who's empowering this. It is God who gives to Jacob the prophetic foresight necessary to say the things that he will say, not only to, Ab- to uh, Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, but then as we get into the 49th chapter, the prophecies concerning all of his sons. So Joseph brought his sons near to his father. And the scripture tells us that Jacob kissed and embraced his grandsons. And in that particular society, to kiss on the cheek and, and to embrace uh, symbolized usually two things. It symbolized love for the person being kissed and embraced, and it also symbolized respect. And there's no doubt that both were true as Jacob embraced and kissed these two young men. Jacob did not know them very well. They had not grown up within his household as his other grandsons had because they had been, of course, born and raised in Egypt far from him. He had known them only for the past 17 years. And, and then only a distance because they were living in Memphis with their father, whereas Jacob himself was living north in Goshen in his tent with the rest of his family. But in spite of the fact that he didn't know them very well, he loved them dearly because they were the fruit of his beloved Joseph. God not only gave back Jacob, his son Joseph, for whom he had had no hope of ever seeing again. But God doubled the blessing in allowing him to have not only Joseph back, but sons of Joseph. And it seems to me as I was reading this passage that what God had done for Jacob was an expression of what God later promised he would do for Israel in Joel like to just read a couple of verses from Joel chapter 2, beginning at verse 25. It's a concept, I think, which is important. There are numerous passages of scripture, as you're well aware of, that fit within a particular concept, uh, context, but the concept given is a concept repeated over and over and over again in scripture because it's the way God deals with his people. In verse 25 of chapter 2 of Joel, we read, then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten the creeping locust the stripping locust and the gnawing lo- locust my great army which I have sent among you and you shall have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you then my people will never be put to shame thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. And my people will never be put to shame. God allows tragedy to come. And sometimes that tragedy comes so that we might wake up and recognize what God is saying to us and allow him to change our lives so that we might become the people God wants us to be. But as we do so, and as we then walk in obedience, God will often then make up for the years that the locust has eaten, as it were. And, of course, the story of Job is an excellent example of that. Now, in Job's case, it wasn't because Job was off on the wrong track that God had to bring him back, but God used him as an example, and God made up for all of his losses by doubling everything that he received in the end. And, of course, the the physical things that he received were just uh, kind of a symbol of God's blessing. The real blessing was the fact that Job knew God better at the end of that experience than he ever had before. And that's the real blessing that came. And and certainly God is making up to Jacob now for those years that he spent in, in utter grief for the loss of, of his son Joseph, he has not only given him Joseph back but now he's given him Ephraim and Manasseh. And in his dying day, he can actually put his arms around these two sons that, of course, he never even dreamed existed because he felt his own son was long dead. I mean, God loves to give good gifts, and God loves to bless. And so we see that here, I think, in the life of Jacob, and it's a principle that God applies to his people. He applies it to Israel, you know, and he applies it, I think, to his church. Thus, Jacob's kiss and his embrace of these two young men. And again, remember, last week we talked about this. And let me, for those of you who weren't here, just re- recount it. Often, Ephraim and Manasseh are portrayed as just little boys coming up to their old, old grandfather. And he's kind of patting the little boys on their head, you know, like they're little 10-year-olds. But we noted last week, these are not 10-year-old boys. They are probably closer to 25-year-old grown men. And, and you, you put this together from the information given and you, you see that. And so they're still young, but, but they're full-grown men here. And so they're coming before their grandfather. He is embracing them And he is giving them love and a kiss and an embrace on behalf of not only them, Ephraim and Manasseh, but on behalf of Joseph, on behalf of Rachel. He is kissing them on behalf of the wife, the grandmother now, who would never herself be able to kiss these two grandsons because she had been long dead. And so... You, you could just—I don't know if you can put yourself in his place—and just as he put his arms around them, and how how flowed there flowed through him certainly these these feelings, these emotions, of love for these two young men, on, on behalf of not only himself but even his beloved wife, and of course at the same time he was showing respect to these two young men, because these two young men were the sons of the prime minister of Egypt, but more than that. These two young men were going to be tribal patriarchs. They would be heads of of the tribes of Israel. And and their names would be great, as we will see further on down in the passage, in the years to come. Jacob, of course, makes his feelings quite clear here in, in the passage, which we read this morning in Genesis 48. Particularly in verse 11, where he said, I never expected to see your face speaking to Joseph. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. Ever get that feeling sometimes that God has just really dumped a big blessing on you? Beyond whatever you could have hoped for or expected. And and this is particularly, I think, significant here within the context of this passage because what Jacob says to Joseph is, that I never expected to see your face. Now, the word expected in English, you know, doesn't have any real grab you kind of feeling. But the root for the Hebrew word here is the root to pray. And what he is saying is, I never even could pray that I would see Joseph again. I mean, that's how far the hope was gone. There wasn't even any use praying because there was no way. I didn't have a prayer, if you will, of seeing your face again. And yet, here you are, and not only you, your two sons. And I think what is important to remember about Jacob here is he gives God the credit. He credits God for giving him this joy, for bringing him back Joseph, for bringing him Ephraim and Manasseh. It is God to whom I give the glory. He... Who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that I ask or think. Now, he didn't know those words. He hadn't, you know, Paul is a long way down the line yet. But the truth was in his heart, and he knew it to be true in this situation. When Jacob told Joseph that he had had no hope of ever seeing again, he really wasn't complaining. I think by this point in his life, Jacob had come to the realization that many of his troubles were of his own making. He couldn't dump it on God and say, God has just done all this to me and I was innocent. He knew that his troubles were his own making. He was not a man of great obedience, as we have noted, as we have studied through the life of Jacob. He was a man of um, somewhat limited commitment, it seems. God had to keep appearing to him and kind of shoring him up. Jacob often lacked in obedience and commitment and that impacted his sons. And what he did was raise a brood of worldlings. And in the passages that we have already studied, we find that his sons finally awakened when God awakened them. And in the meantime, they had lived their lives as if God didn't even exist until suddenly through the drought god awakened their hearts and their minds to the truth and we studied in detail how god got a hold of the man judah and and transformed him and impacted the other sons the other brothers in the in the process if jacob had been able or if jacob had committed himself to raise his sons more in the way of the lord now We we remember the passages of Scripture which talk about raising our children and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Obviously, he didn't have such passages to go by. He didn't have the Psalms or the Proverbs or anything else to go by. But certainly in his knowledge of what God had said to Abraham and what God had said to Isaac and what God had said personally to him, he he knew when he wasn't walking in, in God's way and he knew when he was not demonstrating faith and he was convicted of his of his giving all of his love to one son and neglecting the other sons, uh, all of this demonstrated a failure on the part of Jacob. Had he walked more in the way that God had set before him to walk, and had his sons turn out differently, God would have found another way to bring about what he has brought about. It may not have been sending Joseph off down to Egypt, to be a slave and then raising him to prime ministership, it certainly could have been another route that God would have worked. But God worked with what he had. Seems easier as we think about this in our own framework, it seems easier to let children raise themselves. Huh, in some ways. To teach, the, to teach our children to love and to obey God requires a great deal of effort on our part. It requires a lot of time. requires a lot of prayer. And it requires circumspect living. And sometimes we find that very difficult. Unfortunately for many, too little comes too late. But that doesn't mean there's no hope. Because God often overwhelms us with his grace as he did in this situation. He will work miracles in the lives of children as he did in Joseph, Ephraim, Manasseh, and in all of his sons. The extent to which Jacob's sons walked with God was not the product of Jacob, but was the product of God's grace. Now, of course, we could say that in every situation about every human being, truthfully, I think because all of us have feet of clay. And even the finest of fathers and mothers fail. Uh, there's a lack of consistency there. There is something by, uh, in our lives that, that demonstrates that we are but of flesh. But I think one of the most important things that we can draw out of this is the absolute imperative need of prayer. Prayer for our children. We need to pray daily for the miracle that God would do in the lives of our kids. Because really, no matter how faithful we may have been, or how we may have failed along the way, the ultimate decision for each life is made by that person. You know, there are those in our society today who will say, oh, well, you know, I'm such a bad guy because my father was such a bad dude or I didn't have a father or some other thing. Well, you know, there may be some truth in that, but that doesn't fly ultimately. God does not look down and say, oh, well, I'll accept you. I I know your failure is because your dad was a jerk. No, God holds us individually responsible for him for our own lives. Regardless of what our parents had been like, or what society was like, or anything else, we are individually responsible before God, and so are our children. So are our grandchildren, and on down the line. But we have the great opportunity and responsibility of praying for our children, and praying for our grandchildren praying for any of our loved ones. And I think that's where in the ultimate hope rests in the prayers of God's people for their own family and their own loved ones. Because God works in response to prayer. And as we intercede for our children and our grandchildren and others, God works. Sometimes it takes a long time, but nevertheless, God is faithful. And I think our faithful prayers are the greatest gift that we can give to our children, our grandchildren, or really to anyone. Verse 12 of Genesis 48 helps us, I think, to visualize this scene a little better. Joseph Joseph took them from his knees and bowed his face to the ground. Jacob was sitting on his bed. Remember, this is his deathbed. He is nearing his final days on earth at this moment. The two young men have fallen to their knees and they have drawn close to their grandfather. And and he is sitting there on the edge of his bed with his knees over the side and the two grandsons have come right up next to his knees and he has embraced and he has kissed these two grandsons And after this initial part of the ceremony, Joseph asked his two sons to stand up and back away so that Joseph himself could bow on his knees before his father. Now, I've mentioned this before. The term, the Hebrew word translated bowed here literally means to prostrate oneself in worship. Now, Joseph is not worshiping his father Jacob here. But he is falling down in reverence before his father, in in preference before his father, in deference before his father, and in deep respect he he is putting his face to the ground before his father, acknowledging the leadership of the clan represented in his father. His father is one of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And and Joseph is acknowledging this. Although he is prime minister of all the land of Egypt, far greater in power than his own father, he is yielding and bowing in humility before his father as representative of the God he worshipped. Not that he was worshipping Jacob in any sense of the word. But through Jacob had come the word, had come the power of God, And he was acknowledging this. And certainly Jacob was far more worthy of Joseph's bowing in submission, if you will, than Pharaoh, who was a pagan king. Because here is the man who is the one through whom the word of God had come to him in years past. Verse 13. Then Joseph took both of them, Ephraim with his right hand, towards Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand, towards Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the lads. And may my name live on in them. And the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. The hour of the official blessing had come. Joseph had granted his submission, and he steps back again, and now he guides his two sons to his father. In, in Joseph's right hand, his right hand rests upon the shoulder of his son Ephraim, and his left hand on his son Manasseh. And he is guiding them up to Jacob, who is sitting, of course, facing him. and so. Jacob's right hand would easily be extended to Manasseh and his left hand would be easily extended to Ephraim because that is the birth order. Manasseh, then Ephraim. Manasseh is the elder, Ephraim is the younger. In the society of that day, the right hand was the hand of greater honor. And the placing of the right hand on someone designated greater honor than the placing of the left hand. And so that's the reason that Joseph brought them in that order. Now we're not told why it is that Jacob decided to go like this. It must have been a little awkward for a man his age to do this and to place his hands as upon the heads of these kneeling boys before him in a crossed manner like this. Scripture does not say who told him or upon what basis he made that choice. Just that he did it. And as we read on later, he knew what he was doing, and he did it very intentionally. I think we have to believe that God, of course, inspired him to make this switch. It was God's working in him. It was God's voice speaking to him. I mean, God was still working with this man, especially at this hour when prophetic blessing would come forth from the mouth of Jacob. Now, what's interesting is the laying on of hands is first mentioned in Scripture in this passage. It has not been mentioned before, this time in Genesis. And I think it's quite clear that there is no magical or supernatural quality in the act itself. It's not like, zzz, zzz, you know, is happening uh, when, when this is going on. We've, if we think that, we've been watching too much TV or something. It was a symbolic ceremony. It was done as a symbol of blessing. It symbolized the coming of the hand of God upon these two young men. Not that God's hand had not already been on them, but that he would be on them in a special way to fulfill the blessing and to fulfill the prophecy that was yet to come from the mouth of Jacob. In the 15th verse, we read of Jacob's testimony to the commitment of his father and of his grandfather to God. He was the inheritor of a great blessing. For us, it's hard to imagine being the grandson of Abraham and the son of Isaac. I'm sure it wasn't quite as impressive to Jacob <laughs> during his lifetime as it would be later to Israel. As they think back and, and sort of course, probably almost gave a semi a divine status to those three men, as we humans have a tendency to do as time passes. It's interesting how time tends to, to get rid of all the bad stuff, and in many instances anyway, and, and, and raise up the good things. And uh, some people become almost deified in the thinking of people, when in reality, in life, they were very human and normal. What's important here is that Jacob is illustrating or expounding on the fact that these two ancestors of his, his father and his grandfather, were individuals who had not made a commitment of the tongue only. They had not simply said, I serve God, I love God, and let it go at that. But they were men whose lifestyle reflected the faith that they proclaimed. They walked faithfully before God. Abraham and Isaac were committed to obedience. Their lives backed up their words. The the Hebrew for the word walked means literally actions in life. Not just walking down a sidewalk someplace or a dirt path, but the actions of life in total and in general. And it does not refer to some kind of a philosophical principle or vague verbal promise, but it refers to demonstration. Our lives demonstrate the truth of what we proclaim. Remember Enoch? Remember Noah? Scripture says they walked with God, and God accounted their faith as righteousness. But they were men who walked with God, And as Enoch walked with God, as Noah walked with God, so Abraham and Isaac walked with God. In the New Testament, we have a similar word, peripateo, which basically means to walk about. But its implication is also similar in that it applies to the idea of one's behavior, one's conduct. So whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament to walk, Or the walk of an individual is the demonstration of his attitude, his actions, uh, his relationships in his life. True faith and lifestyle, based on that faith, are inextricably intertwined. True faith was demonstrated by Enoch and Noah. True faith was demonstrated by Abraham and Isaac. I'd like to just read a couple of verses uh, from the book of 2 John. 2 John, verse 6. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. And you and I are living in a world where organizations who call themselves the church do not teach belief in the basic principles of the scripture. And particularly do they deny so often who Jesus Christ really was and is and ever shall be. They make him to be nothing more than just a good man, a wonderful teacher. They deny that he is God in the flesh. And, of course, John himself specifically was dealing with the Gnostic heresy that was uh, had grown up. Of course, Gnosticism is not unique to Christianity, but uh, they they inherited a, you know, the Gnostic ideas out of Judaism, even flowed into Christianity and Strong influence, of course, of the Greek world in the days of Christ. And the whole idea that uh, Christ wasn't what the disciples proclaimed him to be. In fact, some thought he was nothing more than a phantom. The direct inference of this Second John passage is that we will not walk with God if we have false faith, false beliefs. If we do not correctly believe the truth about Christ, we will not walk in the truth. We will not walk with Christ. And so correct belief is very important because that will then allow correct walk. In this first book, first letter, John, in the second chapter, I think that uh, some churches have extracted this, uh, these passages right out of the Scripture and thrown them away or something. Because they're very, very plain. And by this we know that we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. And the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as Christ walked. I don't know. To me, it's awfully plain. <laughs> it couldn't be any plainer. I, you know, how could you write it any clearer in English than that? And yet there are those who, who go around teaching that all you have to do at some point in time is say, Oh, yes, I believe in Jesus. And, and it's a-okay no matter how, what kind of a lifestyle you live. Well, it says right here, you're a liar. If you say you believe, but you don't walk in obedience to the words of Christ. And who says it? John the Apostle, who walked with Jesus, who was inspired by God to say these words. And so what we have done if if we adhere to that kind of theology is we just simply have snowed ourselves. We have convinced ourselves that what we think is right is right no matter what this word of God, or the, what the Word of God says. And that's really tragic because so much of the church today, the people who call themselves Christians, believe this way and they live this way. Well, you know, I'm a good Christian. I live in America, don't I? And so it doesn't matter if they follow the way of the world because, you know, that's the way all Americans are, and all Americans are good Christians, right? Well, Jesus was a radical. And uh, if our lifestyles aren't rather radical compared to our society, then there's something wrong with our understanding. Our beliefs are incorrect, and therefore our walk is incorrect, and therefore our, <laughs> our eternal destiny will be incorrect, also, I believe. Another important teaching is given here in Genesis 48:15, and that is of God as our shepherd. Now, it's common for we, human beings, for us as human beings, to consider ourselves as masters of our own destiny. I will chart my course. I'm the captain of my ship. I'm going to get myself through this. I can do it. You know, this, the spirit of rugged individualism that's at the root of the conquest of the frontier. And all that's part of American history. But Isaiah said, All we like sheep have gone astray. He doesn't put any exceptions in there. He doesn't say, all we except, you know, Sally Sue and Jimmy Doe and, and, you know, this person, that person, the other person, have gone astray. No, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. And David, the mighty king, the mighty warrior, said, the Lord is my shepherd. If for Isaiah and if for David, God is our shepherd, then we better Pay attention to the concept of God as our shepherd. That beautiful, oft-quoted 23rd Psalm, which for some reason seems to be off-quoted at funerals more than anywhere else, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but it's a passage that refers to life as well as to death. And uh, we need to, to view it as God's directing our lives here, not only there, as our shepherd. It makes it very clear what it means to have Yahweh, the eternal God, as our shepherd. Using the same analogy, and I think another way, it it just keeps coming so often. I'm sure you've noticed this because I have a tendency to, to make a big point of this. But over and over again. As we take a concept from the Old Testament and we trace it into the New Testament, we find that a concept that relates to God in the the Old Testament suddenly shows up in the life of Jesus Christ. And all of us are, of course, familiar with the Good Shepherd passage in John 10, so I'll only read a couple of verses from it. John 10, verse 11, where Jesus said, I am the Good Shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Then, down in verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus is saying several things here, and one of the things he is saying here is, he says, I am the good shepherd. He's not saying, I am like the Good Shepherd, or I am an underling of the Good Shepherd. He says, I am the Good Shepherd, and yet it says in the Old Testament, Yahweh is our Shepherd. If Yahweh is our Shepherd, and Jesus is the Good Shepherd, then Jesus is Yahweh. I mean, it's, to me, as clear as the nose in the front of our face, that Jesus is making divine claims. When he says, I am the good shepherd. Then further in this same passage, and we'll, we'll end with this. Notice what he says in uh, Genesis 48, 15. And first part is 16. And he, that is Jacob, blessed Joseph and said, The God, the word there is Elohim, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from evil, bless the lads. And what is interesting here is that you have a, tri- a triple reference to God is what you have in these two verses. And some feel that this is, whether understood by Jacob or not, it is a reference to the triune Godhead. Because in the Hebrew, we have a triplet of equality here. When it says Elohim, Elohim, the angel, there's no declination here. It's three ways of saying the same thing. I mean, different concepts related there, but the the initial phrase is the same in terms of its intent in each case. Even though in the third phrase it says the angel and the word Malak is used there or Angel or, or messenger, what he is talking about there, you can get this from the, the the synonyms here Elohim Elohim, the angel, who had Jacob encountered several times, but the angel of the Lord, and we know from study of the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord was a theophany of Elohim, and so when he uses the term Angel here. He's not talking about a created angel, you know, like Gabriel or somebody. He's talking about a theophany of the Almighty. There were many theophanies in the Old Testament where God came in the form of an angel or God came in the form of a man and spoke. And it was quite clear through the passage that this was God manifesting Himself. All of these, though, were a brief duration. Here, gone. But who is the enduring theophany? Who is Emmanuel, God, with us? That, of course, as we know, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ became the permanent theophany of God. To walk on this earth for 35 or so years, in the flesh visible to all, and then for the concept of him to carry on down through time. As recorded in the pages of Scripture. Because who can redeem from evil? Can any angel redeem us from evil? Certainly not. An angel is just a created being. An angel has no power of redemption. An angel has no power of forgiveness of sin. Only God can redeem. Only God can forgive from sin. But Christ Himself, as the angel of the Lord, as the ongoing permanent theophany, is our Redeemer. And thus what we have here, I think, where he says, the Elohim before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac walked, God the Father, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this time, God the Spirit, the angel of the Lord who has redeemed me from all evil, God the Son. I won't press it, but certainly that can be seen there. And whether that's what Jacob intended or understood is not important, but what we're seeing is the, manifest, the manifestation of God to Jacob, empowering him, and now empowering his words and prophecies that will come in the following passage. Well, we better stop there, and we'll pursue that further next week.